We would like to first acknowledge that we are on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional gathering grounds for many diverse First Nations, Métis, and Inuit, whose footsteps have marked this land and whose presence continue to enrich our vibrant community. We would also like to take a moment today to offer an action in honor of Campus Sustainability Month. You can take action today by supporting Raven, an organization that partners with Indigenous communities to raise legal defense funds to assist Indigenous peoples who are enforcing their rights and titles to protect their traditional territories. Indigenous peoples' legal challenges have protected vast tracts of lands from development by extractive industries. So consider supporting Raven to support climate and environmental justice. Find the link in the episode description. Hello and welcome back to Research Recasted, the Knowledge Mobilization Podcast. I'm Brittany Eklund and I'm here with Dylan Cave. And today we're very happy to welcome two guests to the studio as we pull the curtains back on the evils of your cell phone and talk a whole bunch about resilience and the ways that we can all build ourselves and others up. Our first guest on the podcast today is Lee Rivenbark, a professional theater and film director, acting teacher, and full-time faculty member in the music theater performance program at McEwen University. He's also a former artistic producer of Theater New Brunswick, one of Canada's leading regional theater companies. We also have Dawn Sadaway, a professional singer, actor, and voice teacher. She's also the coordinator of the Music Theater Performance Program at McEwen University. Her and Lee recently presented their research on resilience building at the peer-reviewed Voice and Speech Trainers Association's International Conference in August of 2021. Thank you both so much for taking the time um, to join us here today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Hey, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. First, foremost, let's dive in. Um, we want to hear just a little bit about yourselves and kind of when did you both know that working in theater was uh, your calling, to quote Lee? <laughs> right, right. Well, um, I grew up in Fredericton, New Brunswick. And um, uh, when I was in grade eight, I uh, joined a local musical theater troupe called Characters Incorporated. And I, I still remember the feeling that I had when I walked into the theater for the first day. I had this kind of overwhelming uh, feeling that I had come home and I really did kind of know in that instant that I would be doing this for the rest of my life and the the teacher that I was working with who um, uh, ran the program was a, a guy named Philip Sexsmith and uh, he really changed my life in such a profound way uh, he taught me you know for example the value of trust in the creative process um, and he he really sh encouraged me to believe in myself and follow my artistic instincts so um, he, he's kind of my mentor, and uh, every day I strive to create a learning environment as as positive and supportive and and fun as the one that he created for all of us. That's truly fantastic. Sometimes it's hard <laughs> to come by a, a good nurturing learning environment like that. So you know, if you if you find that, hold on to it. You know, yeah. and try trying to influence uh, in your own work. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. And my experience is similar in that I had also uh, a really profound mentor mentorship by a couple of teachers. I grew up in Sherwood Park, and my by grade three, I, I really knew I loved to sing. And my grade three teacher, Mrs. Kelba, advised my parents to get me some singing lessons. So I began group lessons around that time. And then eventually by grade seven, I was studying privately with an, an, what who was a, a very inspiring local teacher, uh, Heather Bedford Clooney, who, by the way, now runs the Edmonton Music Festival. And I knew then that I really wanted to be on the stage and be on the stage singing. Interestingly, Heather also directed a number of school musicals that I was in, and it wasn't in, but it wasn't really until I completed a Bachelor of Music 
uh, that I realized that while I loved singing, my real passion was combining music and theater. So I eventually went on to study music theater. And since then, I've been committed to finding ways to combine these two passions of mine. I have to like admit that my secret yearning in life was always to be in musical theater. Like really? I was the biggest musical theater geek. Yeah, of in, course. Yeah, in <laughs> high school. And like I still like karaoke, like music. I'm just a musical theater nut. Didn't end up there, but I have promised myself that if I ever do go back to school, I'm just, I don't care if I'm like 56. Girl, she is like on stage, <laughs> singing, dancing. And I was always on the other side of it. I was always in the theater production world of things uh, throughout high school and all that stuff. And then mu a musician as well. I'm in the music program. Well, we'll take oh, both yeah. of you. We'll take both <laughs> of you. <laughs> I think it's great. You should totally do that yeah. at any yeah, point in your right life. Right now it's more yeah. of a hobby, but like man alive to get paid to sing and dance and act. What a dream. Um, <laughs> so then kind of how did you guys make that move from, you know, performer to to thinking that you wanted to actually teach this and, and then come to be at McEwen? That's a really good question. Um, well, when I finished high school, I attended the acting program at the National Theatre School of Canada in Montreal. And it was um, a really amazing experience because I was surrounded by uh, young people who had the same passion that I had for theatre. And then after I graduated in 1992, I acted with a bunch of companies uh, in different parts of the country, I, uh, like the Centaur Theatre in Montreal and um, uh, Neptune Theatre in Halifax, and I had the opportunity to travel around North America with a company called Mermaid Theatre of Nova Scotia. and um, Very fitting. <laughs> yes, completely. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was really exciting. Uh, I, I had the opportunity to perform in, in some really beautiful venues like the Brooklyn Academy of Music in New York City and uh, the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts in, um, in Washington. And um, so after that, I decided, okay, I'm going to create my own theater company. Uh, and I directed shows like Little Shop of Horrors oh. and uh, uh, The World Goes Around, which we're actually producing this year as well here at McEwen. And then uh, finally, talking about, you know, your question, back to your question about how did I transition into being a teacher, uh, in 1999, the former artistic producer of Theatre New Brunswick approached me and said, hey, would you like to create a theatre school uh, here with the company? So you were involved <laughs> in its yeah. its. Conception. conception, yeah. Yeah, and I, I literally had no idea what wow. I was doing, but I went, sure, okay, you know, because you're young and you, you know, and I, I was, I think, just really hungry to work. And so I started a theater school there, and then it, it started with, I think, about 30 students. Don knows the theater school. I know school. this theater school, and yeah. it's massive now. So. Yeah, it, uh, it sort of grew very quickly to about, you know, 300 students a year. And it's it's funny how big of a community uh there is in New Brunswick for musical theater. I, I think probably because we all took, you know, school trips down to New York City and, you know, that so kind close. of thing. Yeah, Broadway yeah. is so close, eh? Yeah, it's, you know, it's about 10 hours away or 12 hours away, whatever. Um, anyway, and then I went on to direct with the Young Company. And finally, in 2006, I um, became the artistic producer of the company. So I really did kind of work my way, you know, um, uh, up the food chain. Yeah, up the food chain, I guess you could say. <laughs> and directed shows like the, the Rocky Horror Show and The Graduate and Tuesdays with Maury. And so I worked with company for about 10 years. And then 
I don't know. I just had a yearning to return to school and stretch because I, I felt like, oh, I feel like a bit stagnant, uh, you know, as an artist and I want to grow and I want to do new things. So I returned to uh, school to do my Master of Fine Arts degree uh, in directing at the University of Alberta, which is where Don and I met. And um, that's, I guess, what brought me to Edmonton and eventually to McEwen. Okay. How about yourself, Don? Well, music and theater has taken me also in several directions. I, like Lee, I spent time in Montreal as well. He studied at uh, the National Theater School and I was at, uh, I attended McGill University and completed my Bachelor of Music in performance there. Uh, then I went on, because I had discovered that I loved theater and combining theater and music, I went on to study at the Banff School of Fine Arts and there was a music theater program there uh, that unfor unfortunately doesn't exist anymore, but it was a magic time and artists from around the world were brought in together to you know create and learn and collaborate and it was an incredible incredible time that really helped you know sort of form and inform who I was as an artist and an educator is this this uh, now the BAMP Center yeah yeah yeah, at the time it was called the BAMP School of Fine Arts. Well, it's a wonderful place. Yeah. I uh, did a couple, pract not practicums, but a couple couple courses there. Yeah. I used to call it the art spa. Yes, it's 100% a spa. It, <laughs> it makes you feel like you're at a spa, that's for sure. Absolutely. Anyway, I continued to perform as a musician and theater artist after that. And uh, eventually I completed my Bachelor of Education and then I taught high school for several years. And surprisingly, I actually fell in love with teaching and it, I found it was really rewarding and I was really proud to have developed this um, very strong musical theater program, one of the strongest in the province. And at one time, I think I was sending more students to McEwen University's diploma program uh, in music theater than any other high school. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And then all of a sudden, my husband and I had, my kids call it a midlife crisis. And, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he's a chef and, and we both have this sort of adventurous spirit. So we decided to move our family across the country to Prince Edward Island. And I became the managing artistic director of a small theater in Georgetown, PEI. And we also ran and operated a small inn or, and um, restaurant there. And it was right across the street from the theater. And because the inn was kind of the only place in, in town for visiting artists to stay, we had some really amazing times hosting some remarkable performers. Some people like Buffy St. Marie were there. And amazing. I know George Canyon and Ashley McIsaac. And there were mm. lots of others. And, you know, after a concert at the theater, they would often be found in my dining room playing on my grand piano, and occasionally I would be allowed to jam with them. And anyway, it was a really remarkable time. I did a fair bit of directing in the theater itself, and it was it was really quite um, a special time for me as both a musician and an and a director and actor. That's so cool. Mm -hmm. um, like Brittany and I both have culinary backgrounds. Mm. Uh, uh, Br <laughs> Brittany is a chef and uh, many other things. Uh, right now, I tour with Cirque du Soleil as a touring chef. Really? Um, oh my goodness! When they're when they're not shut down, but um, that's that's something that I do in my off time, uh, as well. I in uh, in relation to you know you owning this inn, I used to run a band house for a venue in Red Deer, and get constantly getting these artists through jamming on the you know yep. everything at the house. It was really inspiring. Uh, yeah, and it's just such a cool environment. I wouldn't do it for the rest of my life because it it's a lifestyle. Um, and sometimes you just get some crazy people that, yeah. that come and stay with you. But <laughs> that is true. <laughs> I have it's stories. A toss up. <laughs> There's a book there somewhere, yeah. I'm sure, for both of so, us. So 
what what let's start maybe go back uh with lee on like what where did you get involved with research and kind of like what inspired you to start your journey in, into research oh well my journey i mean <sighs> I guess let me say this. So th there's different kinds of research that we deal with, you know, in the performing arts. Um, there's sort of more traditional qualitative and quantitative research that you would the see. <laughs> yes, e exactly. The surveys, that, that kind of thing. Um, and there's also creative work. So that can include like writing or directing shows or performing in shows. So all of that is considered research in our field. We called it uh, practice-informed research, something like that. Yeah, th yeah, that's exactly. Um, and so I think that between those two different types of research, I, I think there, there should be an interplay between them, you know, a bit of a dance. It's a bit like the idea of uh, theory informing creative practice and vice versa. So, um, you know, I, I started... I started getting involved in research just through my creative practice, and that's actually how I became interested in the more like qualitative or quantitative, you know, more of that kind of quote unquote scientific kind of mm -hmm. research. Like the beakers yeah. and the Bunsen burners. Like when you think of <laughs> yeah. research, yeah. Yeah, and I know Don has done uh, well, very it was, similar. It was actually yeah. a research question that, uh, <coughs> excuse me, drew me to consider doing an MFA in the first place. I'm going to have to stop. Yeah, yeah. For that's all right. <coughs> I actually swallowed my tea down the wrong oh way. no hmm. so <coughs> there we go so it was a research question that drew me to consider doing an, an MFA in the first place I really wanted to understand how we could bridge the gap between an actor's vocal pedagogy and a singer's vocal pedagogy my two worlds um, and pedagogy meaning sort of the methods we use to teach okay yeah. So having studied in both worlds, I was really aware that the training is significantly different in each area. And I wanted to not only ask why, but to encourage more dialogue between the two disciplines. The University of Alberta, and that's where I met Lee, was because we were both doing our MFAs at the same time, was amazing because it allowed me to explore uh, this area of research during my MFA and to work among these, you know, different faculties at the U of A. I worked in drama, I worked in music and in speech language pathology. And I, I really support or credit the support of Betty Moulton, who was a fabulous um, professor at the U of A drama department for, she added lots of fuel to the fire of an already pretty darn inquisitive mind of mine. Um, so what really, uh, you know, when I really dove into the, you know, world of research further was when I was at St. Thomas University and I, I went there to teach after my MFA, um, I developed a qualitative research study that asked, you know, what kind of language seemed most effective when teaching voice? And I asked the question because, because I was curious about it. It seemed that some students really needed a more... Like liked more metaphorical, you know, language or images. Like why, you know, breathe in through the bottom of your feet. And I mean, we <laughs> okay. can't, you know, we can't breathe in through the bottom of our feet, but it would elicit a response, a physical response that really worked. And then other students really wanted more scientific language, you know, like raise your soft palate or, you know, um, release your, you know, interior, uh, you know, your, uh, you know, obliques or something like that. So, so that, that was a, I was curious, you know, do students respond better to scientific language or do they respond better to metaphorical language and 
it was through that question that I really learned how to develop a good questionnaire and to gather reliable data. And it was a real interesting process that, you know, eventually led me to publish, um, publish in the Voice and Speech Review and the articles titled The Language of Teaching Voice. And, and uh, it was a really rewarding experience. So mm -hmm. super interesting. And a beautiful title. I love like a good title, title. for a study. <laughs> So. A good long title. Yes, a very <laughs> good long, but like full yeah. of alliteration. Right. <laughs> so, Lee, so while Lee mentioned, you know, some of our research is in the arts is indeed about writing and directing and performing. We're also very much engaged in more scientific, uh, qualitative or quantitative research. Th that kind of research that creates some, it creates some pretty really interesting and, you know, darn good collaborations with other departments. So I'm. I get really, I'm sorry, I get really excited when I start talking about uh, that kind of research. Yeah. And, you know, how, when did you guys kind of decide to do research together, I guess? Well, it's interesting because we, we actually met in 2010, was it? Uh, yep. Yeah. When we were at the University of Alberta together and we took Betty Moulton's class, an incredible class um, on voice pedagogy together. And um, <clears throat> I guess I would say, like, I, I always I kind of believe that uh, things happen for a reason. And so when I met Dawn, I really connected with her at the time. And I, I always thought, oh, you know, we should really do something together. But it wasn't until and, and then we actually ended up chasing each other around the country. Like Dawn <laughs> went to the uh, St. Thomas University and started the musical theater training program there. And then I went there after Dawn moved here to McEwen. Um, and uh, and then finally, I heard about the job opening at McEwen and was really excited to apply for it for a whole bunch of reasons. My partner's from Edmonton, so it was great to be able to move back to Edmonton and be close to his family. Plus, and, you wanted to work with me. And Don Sadaway. <laughs> um, and then, we just, I don't know, we just sort of naturally started working together and... Uh, uh, you know, and we became really interested in doing some research on resilience that I think we're going to talk about later in the podcast. Oh, so, yes, quite yeah. a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and we are going to dive in. I really do want to focus on this resilience, resilience building, because it sounds like something that really is applicable for every person everywhere. Indeed. Um, but before we do that and before we take a little break, I just want to briefly touch on breathing through a straw. Um, which sure. Lee is your short film. You sent me uh, a link to it and I watched it. It's an, a remarkable. I love this show. I, like the first 30 <laughs> seconds, I was like, wait, what? Wait, oh my gosh. But like you're hooked. Um, and something that really, really drew me in was um, if people haven't seen it, it's quite a heavy piece. Yeah. But you found these really, really interesting small moments to bring in some humor, even if it wasn't like ha ha humor, just like situational everyday humor. So yeah, I just want to talk a little bit um, about it. Can you tell tell us a little bit about it and our listeners maybe where they could, if they want to see it, find it? Yeah, totally. I'm Well, Breathing Through a Straw, it's an original film that I, I wrote and directed um, that explores the consequences of secrets. Which is a huge... Yes, <laughs> element in the show, yeah. Um, and it stars um, Christian Lloyd, who is an actor who um, performed in The Handmaid's Tale and American Gods. People might recognize him from, you know, those... Um, uh, you know, popular shows. Um, Will Brisbane was in it, who is a local actor, a young local actor, um, who was actually interesting. Interestingly, he was just cast in Disney's um, Paw Patrol. Oh, no way. yes, yeah. that's he was the the 
child. Yeah, I guess the young. Yeah, I read about about him. Yeah, so mm-hmm. he, it's it really exciting. His career is taking off. Um, it's um, it also features Doug Mertz, who is our new voice and acting teacher here at McEwen, and the former director of education at the Citadel Theater, um, and, and several other wonderful people. And and um, so, <laughs> I guess. The film is inspired by a true story mm-hmm. about this hookup that I heard about that went like horribly wrong. Um, and um, uh, I, I took some artistic license, of course, you know, in in the story. But it tells the story about this man named Parker, who is a 45-year-old closeted gay man. And when the story begins, Parker has just moved back into his uh, uh, childhood home with his mother, Ernie, who is suffering from dementia. And... Uh, uh, and Ernie kind of secretly suspects that Parker is gay. And so at night over supper, she kind of quizzes him and says, where do you go at night? And um, and he lies to her and says that he goes to the park to feed the ducks. So later that night, Parker goes to an abandoned uh, parking lot uh, be- uh, to commit suicide, actually. He's, um, he, he's sort of... Um, you know, has the weight of the world on his shoulders. And he receives an unexpected text from a guy named Jesse who says, are you into dudes? <laughs> <laughs> and this kind of changes the whole course of his uh, life. And he drives to Jesse's house. Um, he follows a trail of sticky notes leading up to a candlelit bathroom where he finds Jesse. And just when they are about to uh, hook up, Jesse's wife, Patricia, arrives home. And to hide from her, Parker takes a straw out of a pina colada and submer- submerses himself beneath <laughs> the bubbly water of the bath using the straw to breathe. Mm-hmm. And so when he's underwater, he, he, he hears a gunshot and he kind of gets snapped back to the present. Uh, and when he emerges from the bathtub, he discovers that Jesse um, is dead. <laughs> and as he's about to escape, Patricia forces him at gunpoint to say out loud that he is gay And he does, and she spares his life. And so later that evening, he returns home to his mother, who asks, where were you? And he opens his mouth to speak the truth for the first time. So it was was quite an emotional, I think, journey for me to write this show because because I really relate to the idea of of secrets and the consequences of secrets. You know, growing up as a gay man in the, uh, you know, 1980s, it wasn't like today, you know, where, you know, Ellen has a talk show. And, mm-hmm. you know, like if basically if you look at almost every show on Netflix, there's an LGBTQ2IA plus character on there, right? So, but at at that time in the 80s, I mean, Don, you probably remember this. It was, it was like not spoken about. That's right. And it was actually quite dangerous to be gay. And I remember stories about, you know, gay bashings in my hometown of of Fredericton. I remember that very clearly. So um, I guess I can relate to Parker's... um, Light. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, gay men of my era, a lot of people hid their sexuality. And so it was, you know... so part of me writing it, I think, was a cathartic process. It was about sort of speaking the truth, you know, for but, the first time, so to speak. But wow. beyond that, Leah, sorry, I'm going to dive in because no, I, because he right. also needs to talk about how well this film did at the in the film festivals. So yeah, I know you don't like to brag about yourself, but but <laughs> we're uh, here to brag for you. I think we need to. I think we need to talk about how well this this short film and your first short film did, like in, internationally. Well, it it was it was a. I was just really amazed at how people seem to be touched by it. It 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 um 
it traveled around the film circuit and it performed at the a bunch of film festivals. So it, it eleven. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank to you. Tootley's Hort. Yeah, well, yeah. Thank you for saying that. It's, <laughs> it, it went to the Canadian um, Film Fest in Toronto and it went to the Toronto LGBT uh, Film Festival. Uh, it went across seas, which was kind of cool, to the Cambridge Film Festival in England, uh, and then down south to the Los Angeles. Uh, Liftoff Festival, and it played a couple of festivals here locally to the um, the Calgary International. I Film saw it Festival. there. That yes, was fun. you were there. Yeah, I was there. That was nice to have <laughs> you there. And um, oh, and the, the the Edmonton International Film Festival, and, and a couple of others. So that was really that was really great to have that kind. And of it won a lot of awards. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was nice too. That was nice too. Yeah, yeah. So it was it yeah. was a really quite a wonderful process. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's uh, a wonderful thing. Congratulations on the success that you've had with this so far. Um, we're going to take a quick, quick break and do a little bit of announcement. And then um, we will come right back and talk a lot more about breathing through a straw. Pop, 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 pop. <laughs> it's a soda based on sound. A dedication to carbonation commissioned by the Mitchell Art Gallery and the Edmonton Arts Council and manufactured by Bucha. It's mysteriously flavored soda with gentle hue that will have you seeing through rose-colored glasses in no time. And each bottle sports a QR code to special sounds and graphics created through collaborations between sixth grade students and local artists. Support local and waste no time grabbing some at the Griffin's Landing at McEwen and get your hands on a copy of the first drinkable publication. It's called Art Darling. Look it up. Welcome back to Research Recasted. I'm Brittany Eklund. I'm, I'm here Dylan with Cave. Dylan Cave. Uh, and we're here with Lee Rivenbark and Don Sadaway. Uh, and we were just talking about Breathing Through a Straw, uh, a film by Lee. So in a film like this that has some very heavy motifs um, and without giving any spoiler alerts, it does have some content that some people could find triggering um, for sure. I wanted to know how you balance um, some brevity among the intensity and kind of the, the drama of those moments. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, well, yeah, the play does deal with abuse uh, and uh, I think that, okay, I'm going to step, I'm going to kind of look at it from an outside perspective. Sometimes I find that when I'm looking at art that is too one note, too heavy, um, it's exhausting. It's tiring to watch it and it's hard to kind of absorb it. And so I think that it's really important when you're doing heavy material um, to to provide the other side of it, you know, to, to find those moments of humor. Uh, even within very, very dark subject matter. And just to even give the audience just a moment to kind of release, you know, the tension that has been built up. So, um, yeah, so so there are funny moments in, in the, the show as well. And um, I think that it kind of helps to, it helps audiences to be able to watch it and then to be ready to go into the dark territory when the movie does go there. Which it, it does. But yeah, that that was something that immediately jumped out to me was like, it's like if you're a chef knowing if something has enough fat, acid, salt and heat. Umami. This, yeah, this film right. had the perfect balance, I think, of mm. like light moments and situational moments and real moments and then like dramatized moments and kind of this combination of the absurd, but then the very, very real. So what was it like creating something like that? It must have been so emotional, like just 
moving through this process thousands of times writing this and like what did did what it, what was it like to work on something like yeah, this? Yeah, it was it was an interesting process because I did find you know what I found that most difficult was the editing process because I was watching those scenes over and over again for like, you know, sometimes hours at a time. And so that was a bit emotional just kind of going there because, you know, as an editor, you almost have to kind of put yourself in the situation and you know feel the flow of the scene. So it was a bit challenging honestly to to go through that. Um but you know just spiraling back to Betty Moulton but you know one of the uh, lessons that I learned from working with Betty Moulton at the University of Alberta is is don't be afraid of those emotions just let them pass through you you know and and, right. and I remember her saying you know they won't break you um which is a which her is classic a, line that I use all the time breathe about it she used to tell us <laughs> breathe about it breathe about it let yeah. it move yeah, yeah so uh mm-hmm. yeah so mm-hmm. like I said before it was a cathartic process for me to you know kind of dive into that um into that material and um yeah yeah kind of share it in this format amazing yeah well congratulations on its success um is there somewhere that our listeners could find it check it out or you know it it actually isn't uh distributed publicly yet it sort of went through the film circuit but um i don't know maybe we could like arrange a a screening here at McEwen or something that that would be kind of fun well if you ever do we would love to take one of our breaks to give you a shout out and let people know because honestly like and now i feel so special that i was able to like glimpse it so your guys's research um your latest research project which you just presented is all about resilience in theater. Um, So can you just explain to us and the listeners, what exactly is resilience in the context of the performing arts? You start, Lee. Yeah, well, Well, yeah, sure. I mean, well, (laughs) it's the first question that Don and I asked (laughs) when we started to dive into this territory. (laughs) We, We asked, what is resilience? Because I think we had both heard the term and it's it can almost be a little bit eye rolling, you know, it's like, oh, resilience. Okay. Yeah. You know, it's such a buzzword right now. Um, and when we did the research, we found many definitions of resilience, like it's the capacity to recover quickly from difficulties or, you know, the ability to bounce back from stress or the ability to roll with the punches. Mm. You know, you hear that kind of thing a lot. But our favorite definition of resilience came from this really great book called The Resilience Workbook by uh, a guy named Glenn Chiraldi. And he writes, um, you only know how well the roof has been built when the rains come. Wow. And yeah, I I love this definition Mm -hmm. because it describes resilience as a proactive process, not a reactive process. In other words, resilience is not about sort of... (laughs) Enduring. (laughs) Right, or like running for cover when the rain comes. It's actually about building the roof before the storm even happens. So... um, you know, that really was the beginning of our journey. We sort of asked ourselves, okay, how can we help people build the roof? And and the answer we it's, found is resi- yeah. was resilience training. Yeah. That's amazing. Coming mm-hmm. from the music department, like we, and um, the, the, I know the theater students go through the same thing is, is, you know, persevering through how, how tough and how much work has to be put into these programs um, right. and how competitive they are. And it's the, the nature of the program itself can be quite defeating if you don't have a way of pre-preparing for that. That's right. And and that makes it extremely important to to sort of insert aspects of resilience training. We're finding anyway, we're finding some really incredible results. Um, because yes, music, music and music and music theater, uh, 
you know, developing a successful career in these in the arts requires real physical and mental resilience and the which is the ability to really deal with adversity. It's not. And, but the thing is, that's interesting about this work is that we're finding that adversity is not just a part of the arts. <laughs> it's a part of life. And uh, so we've, we're really finding that, you know, learning these healthy strategies to deal with adversity is a really is a great thing for everyone, not just for music and theater students. I would have loved to have some some of that training prior to coming to school or well, yeah, you know, yeah. part of my curriculum. Um, especially when you're doing something that is artistic, because I feel like you're putting yourself out there. You are the product right. and <laughs> the rejection of of I mean, even for like writers, like from in journalism, it's like if you don't like my piece, you hate me and I'm a terrible writer and I should like <laughs> quit. But I think, you know, when you're an artist and someone rejects your art, it does take a lot of conditioning and training to realize that it's not about you as a person. Um, but I'm going to let you guys talk about no. that. Yeah, um, no, so you're just right. before, um, you know, you mentioned that it is mentally, physically very grueling. Can you just give us some examples of challenges that performers face, uh, mental, physical, or whatever, um, that just, you know, need resilience, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Don and I often jokingly say, you know, being a musical theater performer is a lot like being an Olympic athlete. You know, there are these immense physical and mental challenges that just embedded in the art form itself. So, you know, for example, singing four-part harmony while you're dancing complex choreography, right? Um, or analyzing music and lyrics. Uh, sometimes you have to perform challenging emotional material. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and all of this while navigating interpersonal, all of this, you know, while navigating interpersonal relationships. So all of these things require the ability to be able to deal with adversity. Absolutely. And, you know, of course, also take, you know, self-criticism, you know, and also navigating these, all these interpersonal relationships. It's been, uh, it's really interesting. Is there a difference between um, kind of like the resilience needed as a student and then as a professional? Or, I mean, obviously students tend to be a little bit more stressed out, but maybe the space to like make mistakes while you're a student is less than making a mistake and losing your job. Like, have you guys noticed that? Did you study that at all? We, not really, although we are start, we are coming to terms with the fact that this resilience training applies to every single person. And uh, honestly, we've been talking about this work being, uh, you know, adapting this work to the business community or to other organizations or just to any other department uh, within our own uh, faculty because uh, we're, we're finding the we're finding the benefit and the and the correlation in all aspects of our lives. It's interesting that you bring mm -hmm. up the idea about making mistakes. I mean, I mean, I think that yeah. a lot of people right now feel the fear of making mistakes because of social media, because of you know all, the world that we live in, and so everybody's in the limelight all the time, That's right. right? And um, and I think I think that a lot of people feel afraid to make mistakes. But what we're trying, part of the resilience research that we're looking at, really does point out that you have to embrace mistakes. You have to just. <laughs> yeah. feel free to just fall on your face. And, and that's one of the things that we're really encouraging students to do without any kind of judgment about it, you know? Mm -hmm. That's super nurturing. Um, so, you know, we've been talking about like what what's kind of going on now with resilience. Like, where did we come from? What, what? Good question. How did we used to treat this? And how, how was like the stigma maybe around um, this? Because I know from, from my own department and my own um, practice, it was like, well, you just, 
buckle up your bootstraps and <laughs> you gotta you gotta Absolutely. dig in your heels and there's do the no work. crying in baseball <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh my god we've all heard these lines yeah um yeah actually that's an interesting that's a really interesting question you know when we started our research it became um immediately apparent that we were sailing into some lesser known waters uh, there's very little material out there about building resilience in theater training or even music training for that matter. But there is a lot of material out there about resilience, uh, which was interesting. So we did a, a deep dive initially into resilience research. We read books and articles and watched a lot of videos and, you know, um, you know, YouTube, TED Talks. Uh, then we applied our discoveries uh, to our teaching practices here at McEwen. And much of what we will discuss in you know, as we go along, it refers back to this sort of literature review that we did at the beginning of our work and how we applied that to, you know, to resilience work in the arts. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. when you got, sorry, did you want to? No, no, that's great. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. No, I was just curious if, um, when you guys were actually students and going through and learning, uh, what were some of the techniques that you might've learned or was there ever a time that you were like, man, you know what would really help? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's a good question. I mean, I I, I don't think there was a lot of conversation when was, we were in yeah, theater school and music school. Suck it up, you know? Was, <laughs> yeah, yeah you, you basically, it was a bit of a sink or swim approach, I think, you I, know? And uh, I think your description is, is really apt, uh, Dylan, about, uh, you know, just sort of uh, pull up your bootstraps and, you know, get down to it. And, and if you're not tough enough, you're not suited for the business, which, you know, that was sort of the theme that an ongoing theme when I was being trained. And which is totally not true. It's totally not true. No, in fact, the research demonstrates the opposite. You know, there's that there's that um, cliche, right, which is that resilience is about uh, pushing through challenges and, you know, muscling your way through. But the research actually demonstrates the opposite is true. Um, resilience is built. Well, one of the strategies resilience is built through physical and mental recovery which for me was a bit of a like eye-opening moment. It was like, oh, you mean it's not about just yeah, powering <laughs> giving yourself through the everything? time yeah. to recover for sure. Yeah, I mean, like bodybuilding, if you want to build your muscles up, you need to give your body time to rest and recover or you're going to just do more damage in the long run. So. Absolutely. Exactly. And, you know, it's exactly like sports training, really. We could learn a lot from sports training. Yeah. So, yeah, you guys found... Um, Sorry, you identified some causes of decreased resilience in your study. Um, I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit uh, about those findings. Yeah, so that really is the first step in resilience training, identifying what is actually causing this. And as you mentioned, research shows that there are several causes related to the actual profession of acting. So things like you know, high levels of competition or lack of job security or rejection and performance anxiety, et cetera, et cetera. But this research doesn't explain why people in other disciplines are also struggling with resilience. This is a thing that crosses boundaries. So our research focuses on three broader causes. Um, first of all, the education system. Second, something called discomfort avoidance. Oh, yeah, I got that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we all, all do. We all do. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the third thing is, I think, the big elephant in the room, which is cell phones and social media, what effect that has on resilience. And so... Um, yeah, if I do can, you want us to talk? Yeah, yeah, I, mean, I can expand on on the education system a little bit um, because I come from, um, you know, I've taught in the school system from basically kindergarten to high school and then now in post-secondary. So 
So I, I can relate to this. Our, our research indicates that, you know, our current education system, especially in the last little while, has decreased student resilience by what Lee and I like to call, you know, shielding students or shielding us from the gift of failure. And <laughs> so after, and, we, and we've, you've mentioned that already, but over the past, you know, 30 years, there's been, I think, an increasing shift in education away from a model that um, defines success in terms of winners and losers and towards one that that um, celebrates participation and engagement. And while, you know, the new model of, of participation and engagement is much more inclusive, it also sends this unintended message to students that failure is bad. And as a result, students really avoid taking creative risks and making mistakes. And they sidestep, you know, they want to sidestep the negative emotions that come with failure. Guilty. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Guilty. Well, we all are, but, we all but are. we're really seeing that right now. Yeah. And there's a cost because protecting ourselves from failure robs us of this opportunity to, you know, learn from our mistakes and to actually develop resilience. So at a young end, we need to do this at a young age. Yeah. yeah. And the, I mean, the other thing that, that we were talking about is discomfort avoidance. And, and so yeah. you said that this is something that Yes, that I've like literally like a therapist has been like, you have what's called like extreme discomfort <laughs> avoidance where it's like yeah. you go to jump over a puddle, but you don't want your feet to get wet. So instead of doing that, you you wait and you kind of try to get around it and the puddle gets bigger and bigger and bigger in the rain. And so when you finally do, like it becomes this obstacle you can't get over. Yeah. Whereas if you had just stepped over it. Initially. And not, yeah, and you know, got your foot a little wet, you wouldn't be in this. That's huge, a great that's, metaphor. I'm using that. it. I'm gonna, I'm yeah, gonna, that's so an let's awesome. Like, you know, do you mind if we use that in our, uh, that's 100%, awesome. But I was like, oh, you know what? It is. It's where you sit there, maybe you're dreading checking your email. So instead mm -hmm. of saying, you know what? No, I'm gonna go check it right now. It's gonna be fine. You sit there for four hours stressing out about it. Yep. And it's like, so yep. yeah, I'm learning as an adult woman now to just be like, just go do it. It's going to take one minute and then you open it and all that anxiety leaves because you're like, oh, okay, it's fine. Yeah. Like, I don't even know what I was afraid of, to be honest. Right, right. Well, you can maybe talk about where there are some well, theories about where yeah, this it's, comes it's from. Actually it's actually kind actually... of the most controversial area of yeah. the research. It's, yeah. it's So there are kind of different camps on this. So I'll, I'll give you the, like the 30 second version of it. So um, it... <laughs> The idea, okay, one side of the, the um, one camp says that the idea comes from a cultural movement, which is called safetyism. And this is a movement which values safety over risk-taking. And there's a couple of authors, Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt, who talk about this. Um, and they say that it basically developed due to a movement um, in parenting and schooling that was like very cautious that happened between the 1960s and the 1990s. But then there's another camp that totally disagrees with this. Um, there are researchers like John Warner, who to, um, argue that young people demonstrate great bravery through uh, their acts of social justice. And we see a lot of that. Like, it takes guts to actually speak out, <laughs> right? Um, However, yeah. Yeah, but... but no matter, yeah. Well, yeah, and really, no matter what side of that debate mm -hmm. you take, there's another element, which is the history of theater training methods, which is problematic, frankly, you know, and um, we have, I, I mean, I should say as a disclaimer, you know, my relationships with my teachers at the university or at um, at um, uh, the National Theatre School. And, and I know- And same thing at McGill and- Yeah, we know, actually and... were very lucky to have very positive teachers who really supported us as artists and, and, and you know, were really great. So um, 
But having said that, the history of uh, theater training is a little bit problematic, frankly. Yeah, and it's it's built it's built on this unhealthy power dynamic, or has been between a teacher and a student. And as we've talked about, you know, tough it up and uh, <laughs> and don't question. Uh, it, but in response to this, our uh, you know our current students want to feel physically and emotionally safe in the classroom, and they should. And so this combination of safetyism and problematic theater training methods has caused students to understandably avoid situations that make them feel uncomfortable. So, but the problem with that approach is that, you know, not all kinds of discomfort are bad. And taking creative risks, for example, as you both know, and making mistakes, (laughs) resolving conflict, reading your email, you know, receiving constructive feedback and engaging with challenging material can feel really uncomfortable at times. And, uh, but these activities also promote artistic growth and they also build resilience. Yeah, just like in your research. So you identified kind of these these root causes um, that were causing decreased resilience. Right. Um, so I just kind of, I think we want to know, you've identified what is the root cause. Well, the only one that we didn't really talk, talk about, because we did mention three, was the, like we've talked about discomfort avoidance. And previously we talked about um, you know, failing the gift of failure and our education system. Oh, and, but we didn't talk about okay. We didn't three. talk about I, cell phones I and social media right use it. because I think that one is a, a super important one. This is I, the one. I this is the one that we really want to discuss when we talk about our statistics because that one is it's profound. You you know why? Frankly, it's kind of the the big elephant in the room. You know that that I think people are afraid to talk about cell phones and social media. I mean, certainly. Um, uh, we should say though, before like diving into the negatives about it, their cell phones and social media are not all bad, right? They're actually very useful to actors in many different ways, like you know, self marketing, <laughs> uh, yeah, pr- promoting distrib- yourself, yeah, distribution of creative work. Suddenly, we don't need the producer anymore. We can, you know, distribute our work to a worldwide <laughs> audience. Yeah, Producers out of work, <laughs> <laughs> um, or you know, quick and easy access access to information, social activism. But having said all of that. Um, cell, phones and, cell phones and social media decrease resilience in several big ways. Yeah, they keep us addicted. As And we, we've seen this. There's lots of programming out there. There's some documentaries that uh, describe this in great detail. But as we know now, there's these algorithms that are designed to keep people hooked on these devices. And they trigger a release of dopamine, so that, that feel-good hormone, which keeps us wanting to use our, these apps longer and, and more often. And while dopamine feels good, it has, you know, it really leads to an unhealthy addiction. And they're, they're equating this to a, addictive behaviors. Um, in fact, there's some stats that might be interesting. 71% of people sleep with or next to their cell phones. That comes from a recent study. And the average American spends an average of four hours per day on their cell phone, which is another... I think study. during the pandemic, I would looked at my my phone time and it was outrageous. Well, the Absolutely. doom scrolling and the like I just scrolling. got TikTok and I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> it was good and bad though. Yeah. Like I can see how it's such a useful, right? Um, even for like news and activism, and then there's some like very unhealthy, 
you know, like extreme fitness and diets and what I eat in a day that I'm like, this cannot be good for human beings to be looking at because <laughs> we do time. We look at these things and say, why don't I look like that? Why can't I totally well, access yeah. that? So, yeah, I mean, and, and just the sheer amount of time that we're on cell phones, I mean, it's causing major problems. I mean, one of the biggest problems is, and, and this is probably going to come as no surprise, but um, cell phone and social media use causes and or worses um, mental health issues like anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. And if you take a look at the stats, like, for example, there was a 2016 national survey involving over 43,000 respondents from 41 Canadian post-secondary institutions. And it revealed that, and these numbers are staggering, 44.4% of students reported feeling so depressed it was difficult to function at some point in the previous 12 months. And even more... Um, 64.5% reported feeling overwhelming anxiety at some point in the previous 12 months. So this really, you know, highlights this is one of the big <laughs> issues well, of our time, right? Yeah, and there's also another huge issue that we're finding because it's contributing to um, the level of discourse that sometimes we find in our classrooms. And that is uh, that social media is also causing cyberbullying. Yes. And yeah. So while, you know, this call out and cancel culture can be effective for, you know, tools for social justice, they're often used for harassment. And according, you know, according to the Pew Research Center, 59% of teens have experienced some form of cyberbullying. That's shocking. And this is having a real detrimental effect on mental health and physical health. Well, yeah. And like content creators, yeah. if you're a young artist, musician, theater, like, person and you're trying to put clips out of you like singing the internet is mean and they're going to pick apart what you look Absolutely. like how you sound even if you're the most perfect human on earth you're going to get some troll in your comments being a jerk so Absolutely. yeah if you are in a profession where you're a being creative putting yourself out there as the product and then using online platforms for self-marketing like it, it's so, it's scary. And and I'm sorry, I'm going to dive in because yeah. there's they're often driven, you know, some of these platforms or some of the bullying is driven by these like mobs, right? What we call social media mobs and which are these sort of impromptu groups of people that will join together impulsively, you know, to sort of tear apart someone. <laughs> and uh, and the, and often without investigating any of the facts or, you know, or you know, understanding who the person is or what the situation is. So, and it's because of this, what, what is called the echo chamber effect, right? Mm -hmm. This, mm. you know, uh, of these social media platforms. So when you see one opinion, you know, social media shows us more of the same. And so the upside is we all get to see, you know, people's opinions that are like ours and we think, <laughs> oh, well, yes. And the downside is we don't actually we aren't exposed to, you know, diverse perspectives. We're, we're, you know, healthy. We don't have healthy debate. And then there's this intolerance of others that is fostered. Um, and there's so there's a sort of good and bad that starts to happen. You know, we lump people into good or bad categories or and this sort of black and white thinking style uh, sort of impedes our ability to empathize with other people. And empathy is like what we need is... Oh, it's like you know, the core of what we do, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, it's the core of being human, but it, we, <laughs> really, you know, but still in act as an actor, if you can't empathize, you, you know, it's going to be pretty hard for you to be successful. It's interesting. I started streaming on Twitch about a year ago and I'm a, a, a musician, as I, as I mentioned before, I play drums on Twitch and I play along to songs and you wouldn't believe the amount of cyberbullying that happens 
um, on, on that platform. I tried, I, I was pretty good at not taking it to heart. And, but after a while it, it, it was, you know, out of, out of the, however many people that were coming into the channel, there would, there would always be one person who would come in. And I mean, I have the ability to ban people. I could just, you know, ban right away. Yeah. But those things still hurt. Yep. And there was, you know, there was a few times where some of the songs that got requested were um, what they call meme songs, or um, they had, let's say they would re- request a song like ACDC's Back in Black, but it would be a version where in the middle, and when it comes to the chorus section, um, it would be... Um, either like they gained it up so that my it would blow my ears out while I was performing or the, there was a some very derogatory terms thrown in a song they just like stopped the song and it was just a derogatory slurs mm. and, and things like that where I'm now pr- putting this out to the world so it's vulnerable being an artist you know very, you're, very you're kind vulnerable. of putting your soul well and and, uh, and you know uh, just jumping off that point Dylan I mean uh, people learn from it too when they when they're sp- when that's all they're reading is like people tearing each other down, uh, it teaches people terrible conflict resolution strategies, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like no conflict like resolution no, yeah. strategy. There's no conflict resolution. So, yeah. I so. mean, so, you know, and we all know the examples of it, you know, tearing people down in social media or, um, you know, uh, you know, jumping the chain of communication. You know, people will, instead of just sitting down and resolving a conflict in a healthy manner, you know, uh, these are the kind of patterns that are, are quite seeing, common right now. Yeah. Um, but one of the pieces of research that really blew my mind is that cell phones and social media are also undermining conflict resolution by making people more impulsive. It's actually changing our brains, <laughs> which wow. is terrifying. Um, and it's causing people to kind of react, you know, off the cuff. Without, reactionary. Yeah. Yeah. The without thinking so first. so reactionary. Yeah. Right. yeah. Without any consideration of what the potential future consequences are. So Yeah. Well, uh, and part of that impulsiveness, they say, is also driven by sleep deprivation. Yes. Because cell phones are keeping us awake and we're not sleeping as well. They disrupt our sleep patterns. They, you know, the, that's blue light they emit tricks our brains into thinking, you know, we're it's daytime. So. so we've been talking a lot about cell phones. We're going to take a, <laughs> yeah. we're, we're, and like, uh, I, I love where we're going with this because yeah. I think there, I think it's bad, but I'm addicted to it. And it's, it's just like part of my lifestyle. <laughs> it's part of our lives. So yes. slowly I'll try and make the change, but we're yeah. going to, we're going to move Who to slowly. Who knew that take... it was such a big part in breaking Resil- down that resilience. That's right. <laughs> I had no idea. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about resilience building and some some things some practices that our listeners could probably take to help their own resilience um you've been listening to research recast and my name is dylan cave i'm here as always with Brittany eckland and we'll be right back since october is national arts and humanities month we just wanted to give a quick shout out to the mitchell art gallery here in allard hall their current exhibition articles of faith brings together artworks exploring faith and how it tethers us The exhibition is up until December 8th and is available for viewing by appointment. So book your visit now. All right, you want to bring us back in there, Mr. Dillon? Welcome back to Research Recast, the Knowledge Mobilization Podcast at McEwen University. Um, We are talking all about resilience and what that kind of means in performative art and in just general general practice. So um, we were talking briefly about like all the causes of of all, all the... The negative sides of resilience, mm-hmm. decreased resilience, decreased resilience, and what are, what are some ways that we can take our decreased resilience and bring it up, turn it what? into increased, increased <laughs> resilience? The well, flip re- side, yeah. Research uh, basically has shown that there are about twenty 
uh, factors that build resilience, and I will list them for you now. <laughs> so get out your pencils. Um, so physical and mental health, recovery time, conflict resolution, embracing failure in our work, um, receiving constructive feedback, reducing technology, trust, happiness, emotional regulation, having a sense of humor, <laughs> which <laughs> during COVID basically kept me alive, yep. mm -hmm. um, developing what's called realistic optimism, being grateful for the things around us, self-efficacy, self-esteem and strengths, which are all very related, empathy, social connections, love, <laughs> and meaning and purpose. And these 20 resilience factors kind of act like antidotes to the causes of decreased student resilience. Yeah. What's really interesting is one of our biggest aha moments uh, in our research happened when we started investigating what causes decrease which resilience factors if that makes sense. So Lee's giving you all these resilience factors. What causes decrease them? The results were really eye-opening, and I've got it written down here. It says discomfort avoidance decreases three of 20 resilience factors. So if you avoid, we talked about discomfort avoidance, mm -hmm. uh, and those resilience factors that are decreased are things like conflict resolution, constructive feedback, and failure. So that's 15% of resilience factors. The education system, of which we touched on as well, decreases four of 20 resilience factors. Recovery, constructive feedback, failure, and self-efficacy. So that's 20% of resilience factors. But back to cell phones and social media, <laughs> uh -oh. it decreases a staggering 12 of 20 um, resilience factors. There's wow. physical health, mental health, conflict resolution, technology reduction, trust, happiness, emotional regulation, realistic optimism, uh, gratitude, self-esteem, empathy, and social connections. That's 60% of the resilience factors. So... Super interesting. So they really under, you know, score the dangers of cell phone and social media use uh, for sure. And we need to find a solution, I'm, of which I'm not sure we have really great ones yet, but we're working. Well, I it. think the whole industry is struggling with it now. Absolutely. I mean, you see Facebook is, is currently under the, the microscope right now again, you know, Absolutely. about the damage apparently that, you know, that, um, uh, that no, was it, is it about Instagram that does to... Uh, teenage girl, yeah, to teenagers. And oh, yeah, uh, as someone who just got on TikTok again, I, <laughs> I have literally been like flagging accounts because I'm like, mm 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 mm, right? Nope, nope. Because I you know, like, growing up again in the early, you know, two thousands coming of age, there was like the whole like, especially like pro Anna movement online and TikTok. I see it being just another place where this is going, and like, yeah, Instagram influencers, like body image and because users are becoming so much younger, you have such an increased prevalence of eating disorders in young people and boys and girls. So we did a lot of social media research um, mm -hmm. in the journalism program as well. And I'm just like such a like, I'm really happy. I'm really happy <laughs> that the, the uh, trend of male maternity photos and male maternity calendars are, you know, really popping off for people like me with the, the, you know, stereotypical dad bod. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's, it, 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 it has helped my self, self-esteem you know a, a little bit. Body image for all people is super important. Yeah. I agree. Well, yes. And absolutely. <laughs> you, you know, and we all know that when we look at these profiles on social media, they're totally like the rose colored glasses, mm -hmm. you know, version of, you know, every, 
the, you know, on the cliff. Oh, somebody's <laughs> on a rock yeah, doing uh, yoga you in know. the wild somewhere. <laughs> that is, makes yeah. But but of course, you know, when we absorb all of these pretend, you know, profiles, it can be defeating. It's totally defeating. And and uh, like there have been lots of research about this. You know, there was one re- research um, uh, that was done in 2017 by a university in Pakistan that showed that 86% of people engage in upward social comparisons on, on Facebook. In yeah. other words, you know, you compare yourself with people you think are better than better than yourself, That's you know, right. and this can, of course, completely tank your self-esteem, you know, and, uh, you know, just make people feel terrible about themselves, right? I'm really happy we're having this conversation because I think it's a a conversation that a lot of people need to hear, Um, including myself. Like, I'm I'm actually, my eyes are opening actually quite significantly more about, like, you know, I'm always doubting myself. It's like, oh, you should sing more. You should play guitar more. You should do all these things. Right. And it's like, oh, I'm not good at those things. It's like, well, you're not going to get better at them. By, by not doing them. By not doing them. It's like, oh, but this person's <laughs> so good at this. And right. I see all these people that are great uh, on social media. And yeah. And they're four, you know. <laughs> they're yeah, four years know. old. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and you know, Brene Brown, the, yeah. who wrote uh, Rising Strong, a book about resilience. I mean, she calls it cheap seat criticism. Wow. You know, it's like the sitting back and you're just throwing darts from the, you know, from the seats. and Like the Muppets, the two yeah. mean old Walder, guys. Waldorf right. and Statler. Waldorf yeah. and Statler. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, and her her advice is, you know, um, she says she doesn't even listen to uh, criticism unless you're down in the arena, with you her. know, with your, you know, yeah. your mud on your face because you've fallen down a few times. You yeah. know, and I find that a much more liberating way to live than to worry about total strangers you know making pot shots about you on Mm -hmm. social media so yeah just to to kind of double back um so we've identified what aspects of resilience you know there are this big list um what kind of these detrimental aspects like how they affect them so what about resilience building strategies that's something i really want to uh talk about um what are some of the the most promising resilience building strategies that you guys found or even created during the course of this project? Yeah, well, we uncovered about 80 effective strategies to build resilience. And wow. <laughs> number 80. one, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <We're>, <laughs> obviously, we don't have time to talk about all 80, but maybe we can highlight, you know, maybe a few of few. Our, our, our favorites. I mean, um, I don't know, Don. do you want to talk about the Resilience check-in or that might yeah, be an sure. interesting I, that's one. That's a good or, one. Yeah. So there are some things. We'll, we'll just share some of the strategies we're currently using in, in our classrooms. One of them is um, a resilience check-in where at the beginning of the week, actually, Lee, you see them at, in, on Monday, all of our students, first thing. And so we pick a resilience strategy or a resilience factor every week. And... Uh, we do a check-in. We say, okay, this week is about this. This week is actually because it's Thanksgiving is about gratitude, and so we'll sit in a circle and we'll pick one factor and we'll share a few strategies to uh, to build that resilience factor. And then we ask each student to pick, you know, to pick one strategy that they're going to use this week. So, for example, if you're going to work on improving your physical and mental health, potentials. Potential answers might include, you know, I'm going to drink some smoothies this week, or I'm going to get a good night's sleep, or go for a jog, something like that. Um, yeah. So and so, there's other there's other examples of this too. And then at the end of the week, um, they, you know, I know that I see them at the last class on Friday along with Doug Mertz, and we check in at the end of the week and say, How did you do? 
know, how did you do with that? And and we're finding that our students are really embracing this, and they're and they're becoming very much aware of what uh, what some of these strategies are. Have you noticed a, a like a noticeable or markable increase in you know mood or yes. performance? Yes. Or okay. Yes. Yes. It's no, it's notable. Like it's um, yeah. I mean, we we can talk. I mean. Yeah. I guess we can get into that later because I... You can get I, into it now. We don't have to... Well, I mean, we are noticing a big change. I mean, yeah. people just seem stronger. They seem, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, more willing to kind of make mistakes and and take creative risks. Um, gosh, we're seeing so many benefits. Yeah, and, and a lot of them right now are anecdotal, but we're really, at this point in our research, we're, we're starting to figure out how we're going to formalize, um, you know, the collection of data surrounding this. So we're looking at really a more qualitative study as we move into the future, just so that we can not only talk about what we're seeing, but, you know, document it in a, in a more substantial way. Mm. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a number of strategies that we're incorporating. I mean, like we talked about before, you know, one of the the common myths myths about resilience is that it's, yeah, built by pushing through challenges, but um, research. I saw that, sorry uh, to interrupt. I no, saw dude. that you're building this into your scheduling for students. Yes. yes. So we've actually, well, it, it actually was inspired by a conversation with Don, <laughs> Don's husband. husband, Joel, yeah. who used to uh, train athletes. Right. And he said, well, do you want to tell the story? I mean, well, it's a great story. It's a, it's a good story. I mean, we talk, my husband and I speak about training because I equate athletic training and actually artistic training, I think they're, they live in the same worlds. So we're always comparing what we're doing. And, um, you know, my husband's a pretty, pretty straight shooter. (laughs) You know, he, he says what he thinks all the time. So we have these great debates at home, but he says, if I trained athletes, the way you train theater students, he said, I'd be fired. And he said, (laughs) yeah, because of the long days, there's just not enough period for recovery. So we've, yeah, it inspired us to really think about that. Well, we actually kind of took a look at our schedule, you know, which, I mean, traditionally theater school schedules have like no time for recovery, right? Mm-hmm. And we took yeah. our schedule and we kind of threw it in the garbage. Yeah. And we said, okay, well, if we were to start from scratch and build in recovery into our schedule, what would, what would, we, would we do? And so we built in every single day. There's a full hour lunch break yep. between 12 and 1. So it's, you know, regular every day. We build in uh, during showtimes regular supper breaks from five to six. Um, we try to give students the weekends off, and so when they're not in productions, they have the full weekend off. Used to be that theater schools were traditionally six day a week minimum schedules, uh, so that they actually have some time to rest and recover and do their laundry or go grocery <laughs> shopping. I remember always seeing uh, yep. the musical theater students on Saturdays because. Being a music student, it's a eight. They were it's an eight-day a week, <laughs> right? Uh, thing right. you know, yeah. you're you're constantly practicing every single day. You, That's you know, right. you're told if you don't practice four hours a day that you're 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 going to fall behind. And but I often would see on Saturdays um, the theater students, theater students here. doing uh-huh. um, the the piano. Yeah. Well, and you bring up a good point, which is that we we are now actually building in practice times into the regular day, so that students have time to do their homework. And then that when they so leave healthy. school, they they leave it. They they watch We're Netflix or they walk their do dogs that. or you know what I yeah. mean? They take time off. So Yeah, it's not just sitting there as this thing that's although to be fair, I can say some of the most relaxing times I've had it was when I was putting off an assignment and being like, I'm really gonna enjoy this Netflix right now. Like <laughs> it just hits different when you're like putting off an assignment. That... <laughs> but most of the time it's like I can't enjoy anything. 
Yeah. And even if I've scheduled time for myself to be like, okay, I'm going to do this at four o'clock the whole day you're thinking about it. It's that cuddle that's becoming a river (laughs) when really. That's right. So yeah, homework during the day, stunning. I can't wait for this to catch on and be like throughout, you know, throughout performance practice everywhere. Well, we're also really encouraging shorter practice times, frankly, because I mean, I had to do that when I, to be honest, when I, when I finished my training, I became a mother. I had ended up having four children in my household. And uh, if I didn't learn how to create shorter periods of practice for myself, I would never have been able to continue as a performer. So I found that, oh my goodness, shorter periods of practice actually work. And uh, so we're trying to encourage our students to build short periods of practice into the day and then provide them with those times. And you, you yeah. know, this is happening in the industry as yeah. well. Like, you know, there's a whole movement to change what are called the 10 out of 12 hour days, you know, in our industry, you know, and it'll, I, I remember being a young performer going, this makes no sense. Like right as we're building up to opening night, we're like burning ourselves out. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're actually changing that here at McEwen. You know, we take mornings off uh, during show, um, during show week so students can actually sleep in and be prepared the way that they would, you know, in the profession. So, but it's, it's going to take some time, you know, the, the boat's a big boat. It's going to take some time to turn around, you know, the industry that is. Yeah. So you guys just, Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Dylan. I was just going to go on a tangent. So, Oh, okay. (laughs) I mean, it was going to be a fun tangent with clowns and, (laughs) and all those fun things. Would you like to go on a tangent? So when I'm touring with with the circus with Cirque du Soleil, the the amount of work that the performers and cast and crew, frankly, um, go through is is insane. So on a typical typical week, we're in a in a city for a week, and we have Mondays usually a day off. Monday's always a dark day on stage, no matter what. Um, and I mean, there is no stage when you're mo- just getting to a city. That's usually when the the crew starts their setup. Um, and then the performance, uh, the rehearsals start on Wednesday. So the, the performers, but we also tour with our own gym and, and things like that. So the, they're constantly training constantly and me being in the food industry or the, the culinary team of those, those shows is trying to make sure that they're eating healthy and, and, and getting the proper things that when they do are on break, that they get to do those things. As elite athletes. Yeah. Like, honestly, These, like, oh my goodness. They the, are. the body. Athletes, performers, actors, the amount of uh combination that all of these cast members have to to be able to do. Not only are they trapeze artists, but they have to actually act on stage and and put on this huge performance. It's a With no words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, there's right. there's a little bit of dialogue in in some of the shows, but uh, okay. for the most part you're right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um no, I don't, I don't know where I was going with that, but it's very they they get over overworked <laughs> in the industry, but building in breaks is is what they've tried to do. I think that's do. where the industry is starting to head is realizing that they, we can't continue on continue to work like this. When you do three hundred shows a year, right. you know it's, mm-hmm. you got to make sure that you're not burning out. Absolutely, it's an investment. Yeah. yeah so um, you guys are saying it, it will take a while, but you have now presented your research at the. Hold on. The very long name thing that I know. <laughs> At the peer-reviewed Voice and Speech Trainers Association's International Conference. That's correct. Um, so can you tell us a little bit um, just about the experience of presenting and how it was received and kind of your hopes for the future for this research? Right. 
Uh, well, we did present, as you said, at the we call it VASTA in short. So that oh, might be okay. an easier way to say Voice <laughs> and Speech Trainers Association. Um, they're a wonderful group. Uh, and and anyway, we had a lot of fun. We did present online. Normally, the, the conference, of course, takes place in person somewhere mm -hmm. in the world. So it's always fun to travel to it. But we did focus on three objectives. One was we, we focused on identifying the causes of decreased student resilience. And we've talked about that a bit today. We explored the changing relationship between the student and teacher, and we shared some of these strategies that we're talking about to build resilience in voice training for the theater. So it was, it was, uh, then we just took some questions. It was, it was a lot of fun. Lee, do you want to talk about, you know, what it was like? Well, it was great. I mean, it was, it was wonderful to be in a room with people from all over the world. I mean, a virtual room and, um, and actually share ideas and say, okay, what strategies are you using? And, and frankly, we we probably took away as many <laughs> strategies as, you know, uh, as we shared. So it was quite a great experience. That's was like really interesting because it kind of says to me, a very professional uh, knowledge keeper, um, <laughs> that, you know, if you're picking up strategies as well as presenting them, maybe this shift really already is underway Underfoot, which yeah. is kind of a beautiful thing that all across the world people are recognizing that we need to treat our mental and physical health important and that rest is important and making time for yourself um there's as much as you say that there's a lot of that there's this is percolating already in various places and with various people there was a lot of interest actually in in the in this work and 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 having us actually come and do workshops and and uh, it's really it's really fostered a desire for us to go further with this because, first of all, we're seeing the results in our own classroom, but we're also seeing an eagerness with other with other institutions in sort of adopting some of these strategies. But can you think of anything that uh, off the top of your head? I mean, we one of the big things that we talked about was conflict resolution yeah, as being a strategy. So that was, was of, yeah. that was kind of, um, you know, bandied about as a as a real conversation topic was because uh, we have found that students and actually, frankly, some faculty also don't have very good conflict resolution skills and people in general, in general like mm -hmm. passive aggressive much. Uh, exactly. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I speak for myself where I'm like, well, and, and you know, some of it, again, I hate to bring it up is caused by social media a bit because it's mm -hmm. easy to, you know, uh, send a nasty, nasty text or if you're not face to face. So really, ultimately, what we're trying to do is create and teach a process of conflict resolution with our students uh, that involves, you know, a step by step, you know, remaining calm, identifying the problem, speak directly to the person face to face and really listen and learn how to apologize and forgive mm -hmm. and brainstorming solutions. So all of these, it's amazing to me that uh, many of us, students and adults, uh, don't have effect. We're, uh, we aren't using effective conflict resolutions. And skills. it's so empowering and freeing when you actually have a process to follow. It's like, yep. okay, I'm angry about something. What are the steps to resolving this? You know, as opposed to kind of feeling a little bit like uh, out in the cold. Well, how do I resolve this? Because all we see in social media. <laughs> so I go straight to social media, and then I announce it to the world, and yeah. and it uh, destroys people. It, it you know, it's it's not, very damaging. It's very you know? damaging, yeah. and it actually doesn't resolve the conflict in the first. Yeah. So the there end. was a lot of conversation about that. Yeah. And, uh, and gosh, so there were. I mean, there were so many, so many great conversations happening about. Um, uh, oh gosh, let me just. Some of it was about even talking about how do, how do we encourage 
students to put down their cell phones. So I don't know how you're going to do that. <laughs> it's hard because it's your alarm clock. It's your notepad. Exactly. It's your, your computer. lifeline <laughs> It's to your the dictionary. World. It's your everything. Right? Well, especially your, if you're yeah. multitasking, um, maybe you're working a job. Maybe you're working two jobs. Maybe you're talking to group partners. Maybe you've got two group projects and they're all both on WhatsApp and you're getting texts from That's your right. parents, your mom, your partner, your job. And it's just... Like, how do I detach from well, this? Well, we did talk actually at the conference about maybe incorporating like a cell phone free Friday. Friday. But, yeah. but, and then we went, no, we, we, you know, some people were saying, <laughs> well, how about cell phone free Friday lunches? So even if you agree to go for Ooh. lunch with a classmate or with a group or even just on your own, that you agree that for that one hour of time, you are not going to pick up your cell you phone. You guys should get like a little treasure chest or like a little <laughs> cell phone jail. Well, and we you used put to put cell phones in the jail <laughs> because then you you have that discomfort of not even having it on, on you. you. There was that game again, people used to play going out for dinner called Phone Stack. Oh, yeah. You'd, everyone would stack their phones in the middle of the table and the first person to reach for their phone had to pay for the bill. Oh, well, that's a good one. And it do yeah. doesn't feel free to, now yeah. I just, I, I've actually started to incorporate it into my own life so much. Now when I leave the house, I'm like, we're leaving our phones and Ryan and I are both like, great, let's just be free. And that's just, really brave of you. It, it, that's yeah, really brave. It, it or feels, unplugging, putting that yeah. message mm -hmm. on your email that says, even if it's a day or two, I'm yeah. like, I'm away. I will respond. I don't even get that many important emails, but I'm like, if anyone emails, like I am unavailable plugging yeah. and I'm not going to worry about it because if anyone contacts me, they will get a nice little message being like, talk to you soon. Yeah. Like, this is a great segue into kind of what yeah. I wanted to go, go into is, you know, based on your research um, beyond theater and performing arts, how can our listeners, how can everybody start incorporating some of these resilience building activities would you call them activities or practices into their lives and why is resilience actually important for everybody well that's a, that's a, those are great questions you know we have this list of 80 strategies and anybody can certainly contact us at any time and say hey send us a list of your strategies because they're pretty they're pretty simple and they're pretty self-explanatory and i think even what the way we've approached it is let's just tackle one or two of them a week and just focus on them and become more aware of what we can do actually there's it's about sort of building your bank account. Who's the researcher? Yeah, yeah there's oh. um, an educator. Uh, her name is uh, Tanya Kolenko, yes. and she suggests uh, thinking about building resilience as a metaphor, a resilience bank account. Um, and she explains that basically if you look at a, resilience per, a resilient person's bank account, they would have more deposits than withdrawals. Uh -oh. So <laughs> um, so basically by just focusing on a couple of resilient um exercises or factors, you know, building them every week, you're, you're making deposits into your bank account. So you're stronger when those situations come up that require resilience. Right. I like that. Like building a little at a time. Um, it's like not doing, uh, it's like splitting up your workout session into leg day and arm day Absolutely. and like, and things right. like that instead and of having just a rest day in between yeah. making sure that you are eating you know, good right. foods, but then also having lots of treats. <laughs> because that's also important. important for your quality of life. Speaking mm -hmm. of treats, I want to just take a brief moment <laughs> to talk about carrot munchies. <laughs> carrot munchies, the caramel cornflake clusters. Get them at the McEwen store and uh, yeah. 
Care munchies. Sorry, they gave us free care munchies and we're obsessed with them. So, so, okay, so people can get a hold of you for a big old list of resilience building strategies. Can I just ask you guys really quickly, we are approaching the end of our time, um, so we do want to hear about what your plans are for the future. But very quickly, before we move on, personally, for each of you, what are your guys' favorite um, resilience building techniques? Hmm. Well, I'm going to dive in and I'm going to say, uh, besides the daily check-in and the weekly check-in, which I'm really enjoying, I think some of it, uh, Lee, and I think you'd agree with me, Lee, is the fact that um, is the trust building exercises that we also use within our classrooms. Turns out that all those trust exercises we used to do in trust games and drama and theater schools. Like letting somebody catch you. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Turn out to be, re- you know, super important to the work. And and it's kind of at the heart of the creative process as well is this, this ability to trust. And so I think that that, you know, this building this strong foundation through some of those exercises and also just talking about the importance of trust is has been really helpful. Well, you know what? I hate to say the same thing, but I, I yeah. actually am going to. I think that trust is the heart of the creative process. And it's the biggest thing that has been um, uh, attacked in social media. You know, uh, yeah. I was working with a, a young actor um couple of years ago and he said you know I never actually speak the truth to anyone anymore because um I'm scared I'm scared um wow. and so mm. it is so important that we build trust in um uh, it, you know in our work but just also in society in life you know um and so those those trust exercises where somebody falls back into somebody's arms I mean they're walk kind around of bl- blindfolded or whatever. Whatever. You know, it's there's th- it turns out that they're really important. They're essential. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, yeah, <laughs> no, and you know what? It's like ordering the same thing at the restaurant. Sometimes you don't want to do it, but if it's that good, you you gotta. So I love that you guys both say trust because it really does emphasize the point of how important it is and we all need to trust a little bit more and trust in ourselves and making mistakes because I think that's a big part of it too um yeah so wait hold on uh lastly before we let you go uh what are your plans for the future are you guys currently working on anything what are the plans maybe for this research um we want to hear just what can we look forward to well, it's interesting because I, I I did touch on it saying we're, you know, this year I became quite excited. I think because we're seeing results in our classes and we're seeing the benefits of the work. Um, so I'm I'm looking at it and going, oh, this isn't just something that we're doing to, you know, anymore to just, you know, fix a problem. I'm going, oh, there's application uh, that goes well beyond the theater school experience. So I'm seeing the application to, as I said, business and to other organizations. So we're looking at that. We're, of course, also really interested in publishing because I think we have also an original, you know, an an initial rather article all ready to go. Mm-hmm. But I see further research and qualitative research. And- well, and just mm-hmm. jumping off Dawn's point, I mean, we have seen pretty amazing results over the past two years. Mm -hmm. You know, our students are more comfortable taking creative risks and making mistakes. This was one thing that surprised me. They have more confidence, which actually increases their rate of progress as artists 
which wow. which is mm-hmm. a pretty amazing you know outcome. Um, they deal with challenging material with more courage, um, resolve conflict in healthier ways. Um, and, and I found this surprising. They actually experience fewer physical problems like, you know, vocal fatigue or things like that that tend to come up during productions where it's very, very busy. So, mm-hmm. you know, that was a great outcome going, oh, recovery time actually pays off, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, I mean, I guess I would just echo I just would, what Don said. I would just said. say, yeah, yeah that you know, a lot of these right now, these results are truly anecdotal, mm-hmm. but we're seeing them. And I, and now we just have to figure out how to, uh, you know, our next step is to really find ways to qualitatively, you know, analyze and collect the data. What I'd like to do kind of is I'd actually like to apply this research to a feature film. I'm thinking about creating a feature film named, uh, or called, um, uh, safe spaces, which, uh, and really tackle this idea of cancel culture and, and you know, yeah. wrestle with it a bit. Uh, so, you know, that I think is going to be an I, exciting outcome I can't of this wait. research. And you've <laughs> promised, he's promised me that I can like even stand in the background and just be a part <laughs> of it. I, I would love it. Yeah. That's right right on. Before we, before we end today, I just want to like open the floor to you. And if you have any, um, this is a good spot for if you want to give any shout outs, offer any last thoughts or let us know if there's anything that we missed during the podcast that you want to just like, think the, the, yeah. the floor is yours well i'll oh. give a shout out to I- isabel sperano uh i know hey, i know that, uh, yeah. she's terrific I love yeah Is- isabel. She, she's and you guys worked on acting techniques um, for designers for empathy and design yeah which yeah. is such a cool thing because we learned all about how empathy again the root of being human but in design i never was like oh yeah you have to feel how they would feel Exactly. So, yeah, that was really cool. Um, we didn't get to touch on that too much during her interview, but maybe in the future we could have you guys on together. So yeah, Isabel Sperano. Yeah, she's doing great stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's exciting. And you know, I uh, there's many people that I could shout out to. I mean, certainly the people that have been my mentors, but also you two. Uh, what, what a great oh, conversation stop. this has been. You stop. know, it's a, it's an honor <laughs> to be able to talk about some of the things we're doing because we. We're- we're we learn so much by having guests on so this is so it's been very beneficial for us as well so uh it's not entirely selfless <laughs> <laughs> well you know we had heard such good things about the podcast yeah. and I, I hope you continue to do them because you're you're both great interviewers and you know you really put us at ease so it's uh yeah it's been it's a real been pleasure like, I'd, I'd say the same likewise thank, thank you making you. It, thank you for making it so easy with us uh, uh oh. with us off for us <laughs> i don't know <laughs> our pleasure our pleasure yeah It's time to take a bow. So thanks for listening and we hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you're all about that encore, don't forget to check out the links in the episode description. This has been Research Recasted, a knowledge mobilization podcast brought to you by the Office of Research Services and the Faculty of Fine Art and Communications at McEwen University. You can support this podcast uh, by listening on your favorite podcasting platforms with new episodes every two weeks. And don't forget to follow and give us a like on Instagram at Research Recasted. Research Recasted is hosted and produced by Dylan Cave and Brittany Eklund. Music, sound design, and editing are by me, Dylan Cave, with research, copy editing, and scripting by Brittany Eklund. Executive producers are Jason Malenko and Ray Barry.